Hello, I'm Lawrence Lever. I'm here with my colleagues Alex Steger and Angus Foote, and we're going to discuss the CityWire World of Asset Management Summit, where we had 21 uh, chief executives who, between them, uh, represent uh, actually $21 trillion of assets under management. They came from all over the UK, Europe and America, and um, we had some punchy discussions, I think it's fair to say. Alex and Angus, I thought I'd kick off with with the diversity discussion. So I thought uh, Anne Richards, who's the CEO of Fidelity International, was interesting where she said that she had been engaging with CEOs on the topic or trying to engage on the topic of diversity for what, the way she put it was she said for many, many, many years. And uh, I, I thought I felt through the uh, uh, the repetition, her, her frustration, and she she did thank them all for um, finally coming to the party. But in a way, the most interesting aspect of that was the type of data that uh, the CEOs started to talk about they were collecting. I mean, they've got gender more or less, but it's it's the fact that they were starting to ask their employees or many of them had already asked them about sexual orientation. That was the thing that I found surprising. I don't know whether, I mean, maybe it's my age, I'm 63, you know, maybe I'm old fashioned, but uh, did you guys find that? Yeah, I found it surprising how far they'd come in such a short time. And really, I guess, following on from the Anne Richards point, how so little changed for such a long time. And now a lot seems to have changed in a very short time. The idea of trying to collect that uh, sexual orientation data, even sort of three or four years ago, would have been, uh, would have seemed extraordinary. And yet, actually, here they are making a concerted effort to do it. So, yeah, I, I was surprised by that. But then again, I'm not uh, exactly a spring chicken either. What about, OK, I'll, well, I'll spring chicken Because I'm the it. youngest person here and, <laughs> and on the CEO tapes. Um, <laughs> do I find it surprising? I don't know. Um, it, doesn't see, it doesn't seem that shocking to me. I don't know if that's because I'm, you know, I'm more down with the kids than you guys. But I guess they're still at the collection phase, aren't they? There's, you know, I imagine the, the actual diversity numbers are still going to be not, not amazing. Not to say it's not worthwhile collecting it, but it does. It, the focus and the, of the conversation was, hey, we're 90% there in terms of data, not we're 90% there in terms of diversity. <laughs> so it's sort of two, two different things. That's the real challenge is how do you actually affect that change in terms of the intake and people progressing through the organization, isn't it? That's the challenge that has uh, has never really been fully addressed because I guess if you go back to gender diversity you've had plenty of women coming into the industry for a long time but not reaching the higher echelons in the same numbers as men so how you then make that happen is different to actually how you measure whether or not it is happening. Uh, the one outlier I thought was Jean Rabhi at uh, Natixis now of course it's harder to collect this data in France and, and he just wanted to do and is doing a lot of ground up initiatives and he felt he didn't need to necessarily know exactly who was what in order to be able to to improve things but i thought i i mean i i take them at face value they genuinely want to improve their clients want them to improve everybody knows that diversity improves decision making so uh why not do it okay so that's diversity uh m a cropped up a lot in these discussions and uh, I was pleasantly surprised by the candor of some of the CEOs who, who, um, who basically said a lot of M&A does not work. Now, it's fair to say that the two people who were most adamant about that were two people who built their businesses organically. That's George Walker of Newberger Berman and Hendrik Dutoy of 91. 
but you also got quite a granular uh, discussion as to what the risks were and what type of MA deals were desirable and which ones were likely to be too hard to achieve. Uh, Angus and Alex, did you have any observations on that discussion? MA is all cyclical, isn't it? or it always has been until now. But there did seem to be a different kind of message coming from this group. They did see this kind of M&A 2.0, I think you called it, Alex, that it was about something different to what it had been about before. You couldn't just say, we need to ramp up the amount of assets we have, so we'll buy something. You had to buy a specific uh, skill set or, or area of expertise if you wanted to make it make it work. That, that seemed to be the message that was coming across. It did, there did seem to be to genuinely be a different attitude to, to how you approached acquisitions. Yeah, it seemed, uh, that, yeah, that was sort of the prevailing narrative, wasn't it? That maybe we'll see less, I think and this was Andrew Formica's term, wasn't it? sort of fewer of those big waterfront deals whereby you sort of try to create massive scale and have a shop that offers everything that anyone could need. And then obviously in also doing, you kind of, um, yeah, build a lot of scale, reduce some costs and things. And there was a general um, sort of view. I think David Hunt, PGM said this well, you know, that, that, that doing these deals purely to cut costs, you know, that's not going to work. And I think in the past we have probably seen deals which are a little bit aimed at that kind of thing. So it did, it did seem that was the conversation. Although I always sort of worry that that goes, you know, we'll, we'll say this and we'll sort of announce asset managers have moved on. They're not doing those deals. And then next week, JP Morgan will buy in, yeah JP Morgan will buy Invesco and announce 10,000 layoffs and merge a thousand funds and we'll look like idiots but uh, yeah that was the narrative but at least at least at least they they um, you know they said those kind of deals where you're putting two similar firms together are just very very hard to achieve successfully I think you know you used to see this phrase wider moat you know two firms have been put together because it creates a wider moat and you know the sense is the more assets they have as their assets are bleeding you know it's less of a percentage that is going out every every year I think those kind of deals are really tricky and you know if I was a shareholder in either company with any influence I'd be opposed to them one of the things that came through in the discussion around um, you know product and around um, how uh, sort of securitization and different forms of you know, this idea of customized portfolios and all these kinds of kinds of things. One of the things that came through strongly there was that firms felt that you needed the full, the, you need every weapon in your armory. Somebody said the full stable of horses. And so it doesn't much matter whether you think the future is about passive strategies, is it about SMAs, is it about unit trusts, what, what's, what's the vehicle of choice? That doesn't matter if you have the expertise and the skill set. And so it's having that broad spectrum of expertise is the key. And I think that's what they were saying M&A is about. So those two things fitted together and made sense, I thought. Let me get back down to the actual transcripts. I thought Andrew Formica was really open. You know, he'd done he'd done a few deals, and he'd obviously the big one was Janet Henderson, and that was a sort of an inverted commas waterfront deal. And I think he was open and said that, you know, his experience of the waterfront deals was that he's he's not had as much success. So I, I, I think that was good to actually have someone who'd done done them, you know, that had succeeded like. Henderson buying Gartmore and uh, Newstar when he was there. But Janice Henderson, you know, in the end, he lost out and uh, and left. And I think to have that kind of openness was 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 good. 
Um, I, I, I liked uh, George Walker saying most MA deals failed, and I liked uh, uh, Hendrik Detroit saying the majority of firms have by and large failed a value creation. I mean, you know, that's quite an indictment. So I think next time we see a merger, you know, we're going to at least have a toolkit to analyze them by and say, well, is this a waterfront? Well, in which case it's got much less chance of success. Or is it like uh, Morgan Stanley buying Eaton Vance when they're buying capabilities and distribution that they don't actually I think, have? If I could just add in a couple of things. One was, um, I, th I think it was a point that Hendrik made as well, was, you know, it does, and actually Andrew too, in terms of it does take time to see the value of these deals. And obviously, look, you know, uh, hold my hands up as a journalist. You know, can be quick to <laughs> quick to write things off as failures, or you know, write the bad news angle on them. Um, and I think Andrew or someone else pointed out. Sorry, I've got some crying children in the background there. Um, Don't worry. We, we, you know, this is this is lockdown. Keep, keep, what do you expect? Keep it in. Um, but yeah, so obviously the, the the obvious example being um, BlackRock's purchase of, of, of what became iShares from 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 Barclays and, and sort of how that. You know, probably took a while to prove value to shareholders, but you know, now undeniably does. Okay, so that was that was M and A. Then there was quite a discussion about private assets and the whole idea. You know, let's just define it. We're talking about private equity, private credit. We're talking about infrastructure. We're talking about property. We're talking about the illiquid stuff, which often produces a very good uh, yield and often has to be locked up for a long time in order to reach fruition. And there was quite a discussion going on. In fact, several of the CEOs said they're talking to regulators about getting these assets into broader hands. And in fact, uh, David Hunt of PGM said it's an issue of fairness. Why should the good quality stuff stay with the big guys and, uh, and the little man not have access to it? So I thought that was interesting. And I thought uh, there were two sort of subsidiary points in there, which was quite a few people thought that private equity fees would come down or should come down. Right now, there's some strategies that are incredibly popular and so those weren't but eventually fees will come down this two and 20 which is typical will um will come lower and then the other thing was just um you know this whole notion of uh, the tax break for private equity executives where the returns are treated as capital gain rather than income it's called carried interest and uh, it's good to hear george walker saying he thought that that needs to go what were your thoughts on that part of the discussion I thought the fairness thing was really interesting because in amid all the talk about diversity and, and uh, equality of opportunity and all the rest of it, um, democratization is a word that gets used in, in all kinds of contexts. But the point that actually, if you're going to be fair to all, and if you're going to actually do the job that you want to do for all, that you need to make the best stuff available to all types of clients is, is, is a really interesting concept I think and I think if they can I mean we, we've been following the story of long-term investment funds in Europe are being reshaped I think that's one of the things they were alluding to in conversations with regulators there's something happening in a review of these kind of structures in the UK so there does seem to be a real appetite to make those types of assets more widely available and I think the uh, the fairness issue hasn't really been part of that discussion but it's a really interesting aspect yeah I, th I think there's stuff in the US as well around this. There's, there, there, there's been a big push in the last few years to get more, um, you know, quite unquote alternative strategies. A lot of them, private equity, private credit, onto sort of more, um, you know, retail wealth wealth platforms. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? I think you could look at it two ways. Again, I don't want to sort of be playing like the token sort of, you know, cynic here. But you know, there's obviously an advantage to them. Someone has to. <laughs> There's obviously an advantage to asset managers in doing this. This is an area that can't be 
uh, as it, you know, disrupted or replicated by by lower cost in the index investing. So it is something somewhere where they can add value. Yes, fees will come down, but fees are, you know will come down from a very high level. Um, okay, and, and as they told us on the thing, some of them are high for a reason. It is a different skill set. But do you not think, Alex, that fees fees come down naturally if you have you know if you make these things more widely available to the wholesale market, the mainstream market, then by definition you get greater transparency around what they're doing and so fees you know the light is shone on fees and fees naturally come down i think there's a fear that the, the you know they'll dilute it too much you know the problem is you, you you need to have the ability to lock these this your money up for a while for this to work properly and what you wouldn't want to see is one where people can get their money out much earlier than normal because i think the the returns will be diluted that's the issue and no. I, I i think fees will come down because you're, you're getting you're getting people like Bailey Gifford who are doing their version of private equity, which is the kind of venture capital side, you know, not not taking control of companies, not leveraging them up. And, and they're charging less than one percent. And I think eventually people will realize, look, you know, we can access this asset class without paying these ludicrously high fees. But I think that that's the difference, though, isn't it? It's what they're doing is sort of pre-IPO stuff. It's sort of near public companies before they go public versus sort of you know getting in like 10 years earlier and so, so there's a reason why they charge less because it's it's it, i think andrew said this on the call it's sort of it is less intense work they, 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 they don't join the board and sort of run the company and stuff do they yeah but i don't know whether that justifies such such a, a huge differential in fees angus you introduced the hot topic of the whole session which got everybody a little exercised so why don't you talk about it now this is the idea of morality and how how the, everything we're hearing around ESG uh, takes asset managers into into areas where they haven't naturally been comfortable in the past. So things, you know, there are elements of, of morality and politics in these decisions around ESG, I think. Um, and if you start, start talking about doing things that are good for society, then in, in defining what's good for society, you're making a moral judgment of some sort. Now, I, I wasn't trying to say... I thought they should be doing that. I, my point was this takes them into that area, I think. And I think that the reason people got so exercised about it is because it makes them a bit uncomfortable, which is totally understandable. I understand why people are made uncomfortable by that. I think it's an uncomfortable place to be. And I think the more asset managers start talking about doing good for society, which, by the way, I think is, a, is an admirable thing for them to try and do. The more they talk about that, the more there is a danger they then get that reflected back at them by media, social media, end investors. Activists, lobby groups. Absolutely, absolutely. They're putting, them, they're putting their heads above the parapet, which, you know, you can argue that's brave and, and, um, and, and you can argue it's the right thing to do. But it does put them a little bit more in the firing line than perhaps they were before. But they, they drew this distinction between what they do with clients' money mm. okay, and what they say as a business. Yeah. So I totally get that, Lawrence, but I don't think that the rest of the world gets it. Well, let's just articulate it a little bit more. So what they do with clients' money is they're investing money with clients to achieve a, uh, an appropriate return for them. Okay. And they say it is not for them to exercise moral or political judgment with that money. That is not their money, it's their client's money. And unless the client says, we want you to avoid this bad stuff, or the client says, we want you to invest not to make a return, but to improve the local community, etc., they have to do what their clients are asking them to do. 
that they say is separate from them as a business and what they as a business stand for that was what came out very clearly in this discussion so I and i think your point yep. and and i agree with it is that the outside world won't see those distinctions no absolutely I, I totally understand the logic of what they're saying separating those two things i totally get that but what i think is going to happen is that the outside world simply sees asset manager x holds company y and they don't see the fact that it's clients money and that they fiduciary duty and all the rest of it they simply see an asset manager investing in something which they disapprove of and, and i think that's going to be a very a very um bumpy ride for them potentially i think you see this quite i see you see this the the, the lack of distinction in in coverage you know for example um not to pick on people but as the guardian obviously done quite a lot of work on um you know climate change and fossil fuels and i remember in the last couple of years various articles there sort of going you know blackrock basically says you know we're sort of very forward thinking on climate change and we're going to divest from sort of coal in our active funds but then but it still is the biggest single owner through obviously all the iShares index funds of 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 all the energy companies and things and and i don't think in mainstream media coverage to use a a trumpism uh, that distinction is, is, is well made, yeah, and, and, and that's probably well understood. Yeah, I mean, so maybe the point is, maybe the point is that asset managers are going to have to do more to actually explain what it is they do and how they do it and make that distinction clear. I think as well, just going back to the, um, the other sort of part of this point, which is, you know, them being bought, well, you know, regardless whether it's them as investors or them as a company being bought into the realm of... Uh, you know, morality and politics and things, they all, you know, broadly were like ducked or dodged or sort of moved away from the question in one way or another. But it does seem unavoidable, especially them as investors. I know they're sort of say doing it on behalf of clients, but certain things are sort of political and are, and are, and are opinions and, and, and they might be widely held ones, but they won't be held by everyone, particularly, you know, something in the US like climate change in, in some parts of the US is not as, you know, widely accepted as others or, you know, so I don't know, it was interesting. They sort of said, well, these, these things aren't uh, moral or political judgments. And then, and then sometimes listed things where I thought, well, hang on, may, maybe they are. Well, they were, keen to, they were keen to reframe them or to frame them as risk or science or data, not morals, not politics. But then you see, then you get someone like um, Fred Jambon of, um, of BNP Paribas, who, where I think, you know, he, he, you know, they don't buy tobacco. And he said, they won't, they won't buy tobacco. Client asks, they won't buy it. Okay. If it's a, if it's a, certainly if it's a discretionary portfolio, they banned tobacco from all their discretionary portfolios. So they are taking a moral judgment. Tobacco kills. We are not where we've got discretion. We are not going to buy tobacco, which I think is admirable on their part, but it is a moral judgment. So I, I think this this distinction between, you know, who we are as a business and how we act as a fiduciary for a client is going to get more and more blurred. I agree. And I mean, it's an indication, isn't it, really, is of how the ESG argument is moving on, has moved on and continues to move on. And, and I think one of the other things he talked about is where it goes next and how you this whole issue of how you uh, demonstrate that you're good at it and who's good at it and who's yeah. bad at it. Yeah. That's, no, kind no, of, I, that's kind of the, almost the meat of it for the asset managers. Yeah, I, I thought that was good. That was Mark Versey who introduced it, the uh, Aviva CEO. 
And he said, it's going to move on from, you know, okay, we've embedded it in our processes. It's going to move on to that quickly. It's, it's how good are you actually at it? And, uh, and you can't just sell all your nasty brown stuff and buy green stuff and say, job done. That's not going to cut it with the clients. You've got to um, make the bad guys better. Basically, you've got to engage. And uh, engagement plus data uh, uh, was, was sort of, you know, people's remedy. And then there are various things around that, weren't there? You know, uh, Newberger Berman said that they, you know, in controversial votes, they pre-announce uh, what they're going to do. And, uh, and then I think there was Bearings who said carrot and stick, which I thought was an interesting approach, you know, charge the bad guys more, charge them higher interest rates. Good guys pay less. Mm. I thought that was interesting. So there's a lot of different ways to go about improving things and basically getting to net zero in portfolios, which is what a lot of clients, you know, what want to do. I must say that the, the debate did, did give us probably the best quote of um, of the session when uh, Chris Donahue of Hermes said that, you know, in response to this whole idea of bringing morality in, he said, look, call it risk and reward. You know, you can achieve everything you want to do without being the Pope. <laughs>